Welcome to episode 60, our diamond anniversary of the G2 on 5G. It's the latest inside scoop on everything 5G. We cover six topics in about 15 minutes, and it's brought to you by More Insights and Strategy. I'm Will Townsend, and joining me again this week is fellow analyst Angela Sog. Let's get started. My first topic this week, news broke um, around Spain's recent low-band spectrum auction. And um, many called it uh, a failure because it only raised a little over a billion euros. And man, it got me thinking. I shared my insights on Twitter and actually had you know, a lot of people uh, comment and agree with me. But um, I think it's, it's high time that you know, the government you know, isn't filling its coffers and actually making Spectrum affordable for operators, especially in a country like Spain, to get 5G deployed. You know, and you know, we've talked about you know, where Europe has lagged somewhat, you know, the United States and, and you know, and Korea in particular. Um, and so, you know, I, you know, I don't, I wouldn't call this, you know, a failure or necessarily a success, but um, I think, you know, this is a win for operators in general. So um, what are your thoughts? Um, I think it really does look compared to like other spectrum auctions. It doesn't really look as, good on the number side mm -hmm. um if that's what you care about i right. think the way you perceive these auctions is ultimately um how how you su determine success right mm -hmm. um I, I am much more of the camp that uh government's role is to facilitate uh growth and to encourage investment um and to make sure the taxpayers are not getting ripped off but yeah. to use taxpayer funds uh, efficiently and effectively. And to me, charging $45 billion for Spectrum just doesn't sound like a win for anyone. No. Um, and I think that if this Spectrum is worth, you know, the 1.3 or 1.2 or 1.1, I've seen multiple numbers thrown out yeah. from different outlets. Um, you know, I don't think it's a bad thing if, if it's, if it's, going to pay for one what it costs to make that spectrum available and two um to continue to fund whatever agencies regulate the wireless industry so um i think if it's a fair amount i think it's a, i think it's a huge success um because yeah. i think like we're in the same boat on this you know over overspending on spectrum doesn't really help anybody no and it, it actually gets passed on right yeah, and and potentially it can delay the deployment, you know, of, of, of a new network. So, yeah, interesting. You know, you and I seem to be on the same sheet, but it'll be interesting to see, you know, what happens, you know, and you know, not only in Spain but other countries in Europe. And certainly, you know, this auction came in, I think, at you know, just right at kind of the minimum, you know, starting price. Um, and so that's going to allow, you know, operators to, to invest in, you know, CapEx and OpEx to get these uh, networks deployed. But we'll keep our eyes and, you know, ears peeled and report back on future podcasts. But let's move to your first topic this week. You want to talk about um, Apple and um, a new uh, 5G enabled iPhone. Yeah. So there have been lots of rumors swirling around uh, the next generation of iPhones. Uh, which makes sense because we're in July and we'll probably get new iPhones in September or October. Um, and those will probably be, you know, the iPhone 13. Um, and those will very likely um, be all of an entire 5G phone lineup. Um, but what's interesting is 
we're seeing rumors that they will introduce an iPhone um, SE uh, potentially next year. Um, but there might be other versions of the iPhone that replace the current iPhone mini, which I currently have. And I actually like the mini, even though I do think it's a little too small. Um, yeah. I think um, a lot of people have seen that the iPhone mini hasn't been a very successful device. Um, and I think, it, I think there's a multitude of reasons for that. Um, I think the big one being that people who like, uh, you know, having a small iPhone are uh, not necessarily yearly upgrade people um, and they're more price conscious and are not as excited to jump onto the latest and greatest, including something like 5G. Um, mm -hmm. So I have a feeling that um, the 5G mini, which is technically going to be, or 5G SE is what's being rumored, uh, will likely be the um, third generation of the iPhone SE and it will come with 5G. What I'm curious about is whether or not they'll put millimeter wave on it. Um, yeah. But I think that they will simply because one, Verizon, and two, I think that they've got so much volume with the current lineup of millimeter wave modules on all the iPhone uh, 12s that I think they've driven the price down enough where it doesn't become enough of a factor to make the iPhone SE an unaffordable or, or too expensive of a device to offer at a competitive price rate. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've, you know, you're the device expert, you keep up with the numbers, but yeah, you know, anecdotally, you know, I understand that, you know, the mini, the form factor, Apple expected it to be a lot more successful than it's, than it's become, you know, and I think you make an excellent point. Um, you know, people, people that tend to have these smaller format phones are the ones that tend to, you know, wait for those, those feature upgrades. And that's a nice segue to my second point. Um, I want to talk about AT&T and Verizon, the announced earnings this week, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about T-Mobile. Um, they'll be, they'll be following and uh, I think at the end of next week, but one of the, the interesting things that I noted about the AT&T earnings uh, announcement for second quarter was that um, they roughly added a million pre and postpaid phone ads. And this is a clear indication that, that people are upgrading their phones and they're upgrading obviously to, to 5G capable phones. And um, I'll also note that um, AT&T reported its lowest churn. Um, it was under, you know, it was well under a percent, um, in the, you know, and, um, you know, and they had some great gains in, you know, sort of their fiber businesses, they rolled that out. You know, and Verizon reported pretty decent earnings, not quite the growth that AT&T reported, but Verizon also, yeah, they, they also reported really solid um, phone ads, both for pre and postpaid as well. So, you know, so clearly, you know, people are getting on the 5G bandwagon. Uh, this sort of comes, you know, sort of on the heels of AT&T announcing, I believe last week that they're covering 250 million plus subscribers with, um, with their 5G service. Um, I found that number interesting. Um, um, I didn't think it was that they, they were that, you know, you know, penetrated um, with with 5G deployment. But um, yeah, it, it's interesting. And I think, you know, I don't think I know. I, you know, I expect that T-Mobile when they announce earnings next week that um, they should be posting some pretty um, aggressive consumer ads just based on, you know, their, you know, their leadership position currently today with 5G deployment. And um, I'm also expecting to see some really positive um, momentum 
as they um, you know build out their T-Mobile for business uh, service offering. And we've talked about those in the past as well, but I wanted to kick it over to you and any additional insights on, on, uh, on the earnings? Yeah, so one, Verizon killed their big 5G upgrade phone pr promo, which is what I think drove a lot of these net ads. Yeah. Um, two, uh, I think if you look at AT&T's coverage, I think a big component of their 5G coverage in terms of POPs was a DSS implementation. So they have a lot of dedicated, they don't have a lot, they have dedicated bandwidth for 5G, but they're also using DSS. So I think that's how they got 250. Um, I think if you look at T-Mobile, I don't think they used any DSS to get where they are at. Um, and I know Verizon's using DSS for like probably 95% of their coverage today. So um, they're not, it's like the coverage numbers are not going to be really what matters anymore because everyone's going to be using DSS to pad that. And we knew it was going to happen. Um, I think the big factor is going to be mid-band. And when that comes around, um, I think we talked about this last week, you know, bandwidth numbers are going to keep going up and whoever has the best mid-band coverage is going to be the one who, who maintains, uh, you know, the highest average speeds. And I think yeah. highest average speeds will probably be what, what will be the determiner of who has the best 5G network sure. going forward. Um, in addition to that, you know, all I have to say is it's amazing what you can do when you focus on your core business. Uh, yeah. You know, AT&T and Verizon both refocusing on their core networks. Yeah. Suddenly they're getting net ads and they're, you know, they're spending more time and effort on growing that part of their business, which is their core. Um, mm. And I think AT&T and Verizon both kind of refocusing on those has, has shown dividends. Um, also, both companies have a lot of investment that they've spent on Spectrum and they've got to um, continue to grow whether it's through phones or IoT devices or home broadband connections, um, they've got to keep growing the, their user base um, to sustain the growth that they need to pay for these Spectrum uh, investments. I agree. And, you know, we talked about AT&T last week. You know, I attended their 5G event in Chelsea in New York. And clearly, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about AT&T in my third topic, but Clearly, in divesting, you know, themselves from from Warner, to your point, focusing on what their core competency really is as network build out. Um, I agree with you. It's 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 definitely paying dividends for AT and T and certainly for Verizon. But speaking of you know five G speeds, um, Open Signal recently published a report um, with respect to the European market, and you wanted to share some insights there. Yeah. So Ian Fogg who works for OpenSignal uh, is their kind of in-house analyst. Um, he gets access to all their awesome data um, and he's a good friend of mine. Um, and what's interesting is they published a European smartphone speed race, which I actually think is much more interesting than the US because mm -hmm. there's a lot more phones in Europe than there are in the US, especially mm -hmm. when you add Oppo, Xiaomi and Huawei. Um, so what, what they found and what Ian wrote about was one, that Apple's devices uh, saw the greatest jump in overall download speeds compared with 4G devices, which makes sense because of the iPhone 12. Yeah. Um, you know, going from a 4G device to a 5G device makes a huge difference. Um, they also found that Samsung's uh, 5G devices lagged on download speed compared to other smartphone brands in Europe, which is very interesting. Yeah. Um, 
in UK, Italy, and Germany were the three primary markets that they compared against. Um, and in the UK, Apple was number one. Uh, in Italy, it, OnePlus was number one. And in Germany, OnePlus was number one, while Samsung was last in UK and in Italy. Um, so there's definitely some room for improvement um, for uh, Samsung and their download speeds in Europe. What was also really interesting was they did a survey of all devices in the UK and they found that the top device for download speeds was actually Samsung phone. Mm-hmm. Um, it was actually the Samsung Galaxy Fold 5G, um, which means that most likely the reason why Samsung's download speeds might not be the greatest is because they also have very broad portfolio of 5G devices, yeah. which include you know $200 devices, $400 devices, and $1,200 devices, while maybe some of the other brands like OnePlus have fewer devices and more maybe more heavily loaded under the front end with the more expensive mm-hmm. ones. Uh, in Italy, um, Oppo had the fastest 5G device, which was quickly followed by a Samsung device. Uh, and in Germany, the fastest was a OnePlus device. So um, the, the interesting thing is in Europe, the Samsung phones are actually Exynos based. They're not Snapdragon based, but the mm-hmm. OnePlus phones uh, and the Oppos are. So uh, it's definitely a, a, a bit of a battle for the top f- device uh, when it comes to modems from Samsung and Qualcomm. Um, and I don't see much of Apple at all uh, in the top 10 fastest devices. Uh, I think only in the UK do you see Apple even hitting the top 10 of fastest devices um, mm-hmm. with ind- its individual devices, not an aggregate. Uh, and then the last interesting thing was that uh, Apple and Qualcomm chipsets are more competitive uh, on speed in 5G devices than in 4G devices, which makes sense because Apple's using a Qualcomm modem yeah, uh, yeah. in their 5G to phones. So I would expect that the gap would narrow uh, considerably there. Um, but overall, it's a very interesting report. It's pretty lengthy, lots of yeah. graphs, very visual. Uh, we'll post it on our Twitter and we'll add it to the description of the video. But um, yeah, it's, it's just an interesting report. Um, just because you, it kind of takes into account lots of different 5G brands uh, rather than the U.S., which is a very binary market right now with Samsung and Apple mostly competing with a bit of OnePlus. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's just an interesting kind of peer into what's going on with 5G devices. Well, you're definitely our device expert. And um, I, I am surprised to hear, you know, uh, how they how they reviewed Samsung. But I think your insight is dead on, you know, I think because Samsung has such a range and we've, we've talked about how Qualcomm is supporting, you know, a range of, you know, price points from low mid to very, very high end. And so that, that seems like a logical um, conclusion to come to that maybe they got deemed just because they have a very, you know, kind of broad um, set of, uh, set of offerings there. But with that, let's move to my third and final topic this week. And I want to talk about AT&T and DISH. And um, the two companies struck a $5 billion 10-year agreement for AT&T to to support Dish's MVNO um, business. And so the brands there, you know, cover, um, I'm kind of looking at my notes here, you know, Boost, obviously, Ting, and Republic Wireless. And I found this interesting because 
you know, obviously, um, you know, exiting the uh, the merger with Sprint, you know, T-Mobile made a lot of concessions to help Dish get, you know, spun up, including supporting um, their MDNO offerings. But, you know, what what Dish cites is, you know, some of uh, the rationale going back to the fact that, you know, AT&T made that announcement covering 250 million subscribers. Um, there's access to AT&T's roaming and transport services, which will very, you know, quickly allow them to ramp up new 5G services as they build out their network. And what I also felt was pretty compelling is that um, as part of the terms of the deal, AT&T will be able to access some of Dish's spectrum for its own subscribers in select markets. So um, whatever that means, they'll be carving things out there. But this is huge. And, you know, and, they, and um, they're estimating that, that the, uh, the first couple of years, the, the payments from Dish to AT&T could be $500 million plus. And then that drops over, obviously over time to get to that 10 year horizon. But, you know, here's another opportunity for, you know, it's a big win, I think for AT&T and it's gonna bring a lot of positive cash flow to allow them to continue to build out their network. And certainly one of their big objectives is to build out all that C-band spectrum that they recently acquired. So what are your thoughts here? It's interesting. I've seen different takes on this deal, both positive and negative. Yeah. Um, I didn't really have much of an opinion until maybe 10 seconds ago. Um, <laughs> I would say that I think it's a good deal for both companies. And I can see why it makes sense because Dish is not going to build out their network fast enough. We know that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they're going to need some support and that support is going to come from AT&T. And we know that AT&T is going to need as many subscribers as they can get as quickly as possible to justify its build out. And that will partly come from Dish. Um, so I do think this is a good partnership for both companies. I do think AT&T will want to have access to some of Dish's spectrum assets um, in certain places. Um, I think AT&T understands how important spectrum is. I don't think they've ever been foolish about that. Um yeah. And I think the big question is, um, you know, what happened to the T-Mobile relationship, right? Yeah. Um, because it seems like uh, ever since the deal went down, the relationship between Dish and T-Mobile has only gone downhill. Um, and I think this is a culmination of that, right? Yeah. Um, because T-Mobile does have a very robust 5G network. That yeah. they are ahead of AT&T and Verizon on. And right. the fact that they went and made a $5 billion deal with AT&T, to me, signals that the relationship between T-Mobile and Dish has not gotten better. In fact, it's probably only gotten worse. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm not really sure what happened. Um, but ultimately, uh, we all need Dish to be a competitive operator. And we, yeah. need, um, a, a, we need them to become a, a solid fourth place player um, if, if we want the market to continue to grow. And, you know, we'll see what happens, but um, Dish has, has not really loved up, lived up to their expectations uh, in the last years that I can remember. So um, mm -hmm. I'm really hoping that they're able to get this 5G network off the ground and really get people... Yeah excited about what they're doing. Yeah, you know, it is interesting. It kind of caught me by surprise. You know, I, I think it's it's 
it's more of a win for AT and T with with um, you know the the cash flow coming in and you know access to some of you know Dish's uh, you know Spectrum assets. You know, it also makes me you know believe like maybe one of the other factors here was when if you look at what AT and T has done and clearly in the United States among its competitors. I believe AT&T has done the best job virtualizing its network. They've been a leader. They've been at it for many years. You know, the, the announcement with Azure sort of passing that torch to them with five to six years of invested IP in that, I think that aligns very well to Dish's plan to do a very highly virtualized um, software-defined network mm -hmm. with you know, Core and, and RAM. Um, and so I think, I think it's architecturally, you know, it, it's it's a great fit for them, you know, to partner with AT and T to build out their MDNO business. But but time will tell. Yeah, it's quite interesting. But let's move to your third and final topic this week. And you know, it's no surprise we're hearing in the news all the time about semiconductor shortages with respect to automobiles and what's going on there. And you want to share some information, some insight that Intel and TSMC provided with respect to how long they believe the, the semiconductor shortage to last. Yeah, so uh, these companies' CEOs have both come out and said that during their earnings or during their earnings calls have said that they expect uh, the chip shortage to continue into 2023, wow. uh, which actually doesn't surprise me at all. Um, I think the best case scenario was next year. Yeah. Um, but uh, 2023 makes sense to me for a multitude of reasons. Um, and I think we might actually have, I actually think this chip shortage can be alleviated sooner if demand comes down. Um, but the problem is, is that um, we have so many automotive manufacturers, specifically on the automotive side, that are moving towards yeah. EV. Well, it's not just backed up. So I think the the, the pivot from internal combustion to EV is driving so much more demand for electronics components um, mm -hmm. that we are seeing, seeing a shortage on that side. Um, but we're also seeing shortages in other areas as well, right? And if you look at what it takes to build a semiconductor foundry, also known as a fab, um, the, some of these tools take 18 months. So if we knew the chip shortage was happening back in October of last year, which is when it started really, you know, ringing the bells in people's heads, yeah. um, then you wouldn't expect to see kind of any uh, relaxing of that until mid next year, which sounds like when we'll probably start to see some relief, um, at least on a global scale. So yeah. I think 2023 is a conservative estimate. Um, I think it assumes that uh, the chip shortage will only be alleviated by building physical capacity. Right. Um, but at the same time, there's also a lot of investment happening uh, with, within the US itself mm -hmm. to expand capacity, uh, sure. to ensure security of chip supply at home. Mm -hmm. So there's a multitude of efforts going on. I mean, in South Korea, there's tens of billions of dollars being invested. Um, and, you know, TSMC said they upped their, their expected investment to $27 billion, And which part is, of that's in Phoenix, right? Phoenix, Arizona. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of that's actually going to happen in Arizona. TSMC's fab 
uh, in Arizona was originally going to be one fab. And I think mm-hmm. that they're now building like six. So um, between Intel and TSMC, Arizona is going to be a very busy place uh, yeah. in the next year or two. Um, but overall, I think we might, we might see capacity loosen up by 2023. Um, but I think 2023 is a conservative estimate and it's based on the availability of tools, um, and substrates, uh, and other parts of the semiconductor fabrication chain that are necessary to the process happening because it's a very complicated, uh, resource intensive application, um, that needs, you know, very skilled workers as well. So and you can't yeah. just pull people out of thin air that know how to run a fab. Yeah, no, the, the, the bar is quite high. I'll also add too, in my hometown of Austin, Texas, Samsung has a semiconductor um, fab and there's a second that appears to be landing either in Austin or in um, Taylor, Texas, I believe, which is right outside of Austin as well. And I believe uh, the estimated investment in that is 17 or $18 billion. So we'll get there to your point, but to your, to your, to your other point, um, it takes time to get these tools in place and get the processes in place to have the necessary people trained. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's a very high bar. And we also, I think, talked on a prior podcast um, how Huawei uh, is shifting its high silicon design capability um, and investing in a fab, but that's going to take them quite a while as well. So, I mean, we're seeing all the right things, you know, in motion, but it just takes time. And I agree with you, 2023 is probably pretty conservative. They could even potentially be a little bit further out there. But, but hey, another great podcast this week, Angela. Why don't you take us home? Absolutely. We hope our viewers and listeners found this week's topics interesting. If anyone out there would like to provide insight for a future podcast on any 5G topic, please reach out to us on social media. Will is at Will Town Tech and I'm at Anshel Sag. We hope you have a great weekend and please tune again next week.